Welcome back. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two Onk Docs. This week's episode, we're going to be focusing on hemophilias. We're going to go over all of the high-yield facts that you guys need to know regarding both hemophilia A and B for your boards. And then I'm going to end on just a little bit of acquired hemophilias for A and B. So to start us off, what are some basic clinical facts about hemophilia? So at its basic sense, hemophilia A is a congenital deficiency in factor eight, and hemophilia B is a congenital deficiency in factor nine. Both of these are sex-linked recessive disorders due to various mutations. So what this means is when you're reading the vignettes, you're going to see a male predominance within families being affected. Usually the females are the carriers and the males are the ones who are affected because they only have one X chromosome. Yeah, that's important. And I feel like that dates back to our med school criteria as well. And so what is the clinical presentation of hemophilias? So hemophilia is at its core, we think about hemarthrosis. So this is bleeding into those weight-bearing joints. It can also be elbows and digits as well, and it can lead to hemophilic arthropathy. So severe synovial proliferation and bony destruction of these joints. We can actually see this on scans and it looks like decreased joint space, bony erosions, and subchondral cysts. These patients can also present with muscle bleed. So think about psoas muscle bleeding, thigh muscle bleeding, and potentially compartments syndrome if they're bleeding into a calf or a forearm. If that happens, the treatment is usually to try for a non-surgical intervention. So stop the bleeding with factors as opposed to doing surgery, which can lead to unfortunately more bleeding. In serious bleeds, we think about intracranial hemorrhaging and one episode of intracranial hemorrhage in hemophiliacs is it puts you at risk for another um, intracranial hemorrhage. Easy bruising is actually not a severe problem in hemophiliacs, um, but it is something that they will note. And dental bleeding can sometimes be very mild or it can actually be very severe if it's something like a wisdom tooth extraction. Yeah, the way that they describe the way that the patient is bleeding can kind of hint to you what kind of bleeding disorder you're going to be thinking about. And so how do we diagnose hemophilias? So, of course, we're going to do a really good family history. You'll hopefully see that sex-linked recessive nature within the family's pedigree, and it's going to be affecting those males mostly. And you can actually identify who the carrier females are by just translating out the family history. Labs that we're going to send off for is going to be our COAG labs. And what will come back is a normal PT, normal platelets, and a prolonged PTT, because both factor eight and nine are part of the intrinsic pathway of our coagulation pathway pathway. And what we need to note is also that this corrects. So the prolonged PTT will correct with a 50-50 mixing study. If it does not correct, that actually means that there's an inhibitor of either factor eight or nine, as opposed to having that congenital deficiency. And we also send off for factor eight and nine activity levels, and that will confirm our diagnosis. We can also confirm the diagnosis of hemophilias with restriction fragment length polymorphism or other molecular methods. If we know that that the family, the familial mutation. So if we know that point mutation, which there are hundreds of them, you can actually test the family for that point mutation to confirm these things. These are single nucleotide polymorphisms. So it's not something that I personally have ever sent, but it's something you can do out there. Most of the time we just sent off labs, the PT, the platelets, the PTT, and they have factor activities. 
And so how do we classify the severity of hemophilias? So we have very clear-cut guidelines on how we grade the severity of the hemophilia based on the factor activity. And so severe hemophilia is defined as having less than 1% factor activity. These patients are going to have spontaneous bleeds. They're the highest risk for intracranial bleeding, and they also have the highest risk of developing inhibitors, which I'll talk about later in this episode. Moderate is having 1% to 5% of factor activity, and so they have less spontaneous bleeds, but they can still occur and they can still be severe and less likely to have um, an inhibitor develop. And then mild is the last thing. And so this ranges from five to 50% of factor activity. So all the way from 5% to just low normal. And so these patients usually present with bleeding with only trauma or surgery. It's usually not catastrophic spontaneous bleeds and developing an inhibitor is very rare in mild hemophilias. And so what is the treatment for hemophilias? I think this is the highest yield part of this episode and very important to remember. This is the bulk of the episode. And so one big thing in our current era is prophylactic factor replacement is such an important concept to remember and to utilize in hemophiliac patients. And this is used, this is used to prevent joint damage and improve orthopedic outcomes. Again, thinking, protecting these bones and these joints in the young individuals before they start to see those prolonged issues is the biggest thing for them. So you start treatment for our hemophiliac patients after the first significant bleed. And how do we do that is we do factor repletion. So for factor eight, which is hemophilia A, you use one unit per kilogram, and that will raise the factor about 2%. It's really important to remember factor eight is a one to two ratio. So one unit will raise it 2%. So if you give someone 50 units per kilogram, that raises their factor eight level up to 100%. You want to administer 25 units per kilogram at the 12 hour mark to maintain that level. And our prophylactic dosing is actually a little bit lower at the 25 units units per kilogram every other day. There are different types of factor eights. I don't think they're going to go into the details of testing them, but just for our completion sake, intermediate purity is humate P. And this historically transmitted or could transmit viral infections such as hepatitis B, C, and HIV. It also has von Willebrand factor present within it. There's recombinant factor eights, which is recombinate, advate, and electate, which is a long acting. You can actually dose it every four days instead of every other day. And then lastly, which I do think is very important to note is a factor eight mimetic, and this is emicizumab. So this is an antibody that bridges factor nine to factor 10, and it's approved for prophylaxis of bleeding in patients who have or do not have inhibitors for hemophilia A. Um, I'm going to talk about this more again when we talk about inhibitors at the end of this episode but it's something important to note. Yeah, this is very important. I I really do think we had a question on the frequency of prophylactic dosing for hemophilia. And so you talked about hemophilia A and what about hemophilia B? Yeah. So for factor repletion for hemophilia B, now we're talking about repleting factor nine. And so one unit per kilogram raises that factor activity by 1%. So this is a one-to-one ratio in factor nine, as opposed to the one-to-two ratio for factor eight. So in order to get a hundred percent activity, you need to give 100 units per kilogram and you need to administer 50 units per kilogram at the 24 hour mark to maintain that level. And again, I don't think they're going to ask you details details on what types of factor nines, but one to note is alprolix, which is a long acting factor nine. So I think that maybe that could be one testable factor they would ask us about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And so what are the goals for surgeries for patients that have hemophilia? Definitely. I think this is one of our most common consult questions. If you have a a high hemophilia A or B population, wherever you do your training or in the real world. So the goals for minor surgeries is to keep the factor level above 50% for three to five days. The goals for major surgeries is to keep the factor level above 80% for 10 to 14 days. And you need to remember we have bypassing agents in case of an inhibitor or life-threatening bleed. And so, so our bypassing agents, so if we're bypassing factor eight and nine, we need to think about factor seven. So this is recombinant factor seven, also known as Novo seven. Um, and so, and you can also think about that bridging agent in the hemophilia A, which is the emesizumab. Um, you can also think about using amniocaproic acid or transexamic acid for mucosal bleeds. And so for amniocaproic acid, you use 100 milligrams per kilogram. You could dose it up to four grams total every six hours, and this can be IV or orally given. And then you can also utilize DDAVP, which is used to elevate the um, factor eight level. This can be considered for only mild hemophilia A patients who do not have head trauma or prolonged bleeding. So this is more for those mild mild hemophilia patients with mild bleeding. Side effects of DDAVP is you can have water retention, you can have flushing, you can have hyponatremia, and you can have tachyphylaxis. So we do have things outside of the factors um, to help these patients with bleeding. It just depends on the severity. And if you are ever given the scenario of a severe life-threatening bleed and they may have an inhibitor or you're not sure of their history, you bypass them with recombinant factor seven. I know that was something tested on our heme boards. And that's something that you, everyone should know and have ingrained in their head. Yeah, that was definitely a high yield point. And they do definitely like to ask about side effects of DDAVP with the hyponatremia and the tachyphylaxis. And so what about inhibitors? So inhibitors are a real issue in hemophilia A and B patients, and they develop over the course of years since these patients have been receiving recombinant factors for bleeds or prophylactics. So in hemophilia A, up to 25% of patients will develop inhibitor, especially in large deletions, nonsense mutations, or intron 22 inversions, and those are the specific mutations to the factor A gene. Hemophilia B, a little bit lower, but it can still happen. It's about 2 to 3% of patients will develop an inhibitor. And you can see clinical consequences to this. So these patients, even though they're getting their factors like they should, they're still having spontaneous bleeds or joint disease. And so you also can't guarantee safe surgical procedures if these patients have built up an inhibitor. And so how are these inhibitors diagnosed and treated? Yep. So the diagnosis of an inhibitor is used is found through the Bedesda essay. And they have a really standardized approach of how to result these um, the result out, which is one Bedeza unit equals 50% decline in a factor eight or nine. And so having greater than five to 10 Bedeza units, you actually cannot effectively treat these patients with factors and reliably say you're going to stop their bleeding. In the cases of having a high inhibitor, you need to treat them 
Um, so sometimes you can overwhelm the inhibitor, but that is only if their titer is less than five bedes units. If they are greater than five bedes units, you need to think about bypassing agents. So again, thinking about their recombinant factor seven, um, think about factor eight inhibitor bypassing activities, which is called FIBA. And then also you can use the primary prophylactis with that emicizumab. And so that can um, bridge those two other factors so that it stops the bleeding, but there is a risk of thrombotic complications if you give emicizumab with recombinant factor seven. Um, so that is an important contraindication to giving factor seven is if the patient's already on emicizumab, because hypothetically you can increase their thrombotic risk. Yeah, absolutely. That's extremely important. And so lastly, what about acquired factor deficiencies? So acquired factor deficiencies, I actually think we see more common. Most of the time, hemophilia A and B are diagnosed in the pediatric population. And by the time they come into adulthood, they've already been diagnosed. They're already on their factors. Versus acquired factor deficiencies, this is actually an autoimmune reaction. Again, it's against either factor eight or nine, but it can lead to life-threatening bleeds. This is seen more so in our elderly populations, people who have lymphoproliferative disorders, pregnancies, other medications, um, and underlying malignancies can develop these inhibitors of these factors. The way that we diagnose this is again on that mixing study. So you're going to see the normal PT, you're going to see the normal platelets, you're going to have that prolonged PTT. And so you're going to get the mixing study and it is not going to correct because that inhibitor is blocking that normal mixing. Um, and you're giving that in that factor. And so it's already blocking that. You also will see low factor levels and you can get the Bedezda assay to confirm how much of the inhibitor is present. Our treatments for acquired hemophilia includes treat the underlying disorder. So if there is a malignancy, do that. Um, you can also bypass the factor inhibitor with factor seven, um, recombinant factor seven. You also can suppress the inhibitor with immunosuppressive agents. So things like prednisone, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. Yeah, I think the question of using these Im immunosuppressive uh, and agents was one of the questions that we had on our exam. And so that was a fantastic overview. So what are some of our key takeaways for hemophilia? Yeah. So for hemophilia, I think in its truest sense, remember hemophilia A is factor eight deficiency. Hemophilia B is factor nine deficiency. Both of them are sex-linked recessive and they affect more males in the families. Females are carriers. The diagnosis is made based on labs. So they'll have the prolonged PTT. They'll have normal PT, normal platelets. You will get the activity levels and you'll also check for the mixing study to make sure there's not an inhibitor. Severe hemophilia is defined as less than 1% of factor activity, whereas mild hemophilia is between 5 to 50% of factor activity and moderate is in between, so 1 to 5%. Treatment includes prophylactic factor replacement to improve orthopedic outcomes. And so when we're pleading factor 8, we need to remember the one unit per kilogram raises at about 2%. And so thus 50 units per kilogram will get you to 100%. In factor nine, repletion dosing is one unit per kilogram will raise about 1% activity. So to get to 100%, we need 100 units per kilogram. Inhibitors are a real issue over time when these patients have been dose factors. We diagnose with this with the Bedezda assay. If the patient has less than five Bedezda units, you can overwhelm the inhibitor with more factor. But if they have greater than five Bedezda units, you need to effectively treat with a bypassing agent um, or you need to start thinking about emicizumab. And so bypassing agents, in case of inhibitor or life-threatening bleeds, again, the life-threatening bleed, I think, is the vignette that they'll throw at you. 
You need to think about treating them quickly with recombinant factor seven, also known as Nova seven or the embecizumab, which bridges factor nine and factor 10 together. And those are our big key points. Well, a great overview. And as always, thank you for listening. Uh, good luck with your studying. And please feel free to reach out to us on our Instagram or Twitter to Onk Docs if you have any questions, corrections, or comments. Yeah, thanks, guys. Have a good week.